Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast and i will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible all i ask in return is a share post and a tag now let's get on with it hello everybody welcome to the urm podcast i am al levy and i'm here to talk to you about something very very exciting It's a course we made with Will Putney called How It's Done, which is a start-to-finish production course that covers his entire method, his entire style, start-to-finish, with two incredible bands, Thyred is Murder and Fit for an Autopsy. There's never been anything like this ever released besides my Monuments Boot Camp, but this takes it quite a few steps further. And the course is available now final week of October 2020. And I just wanted to tell you guys about it because it's going to close up. Just so you know, this podcast episode, Will's about to come on. This is not just a plug for the course. I wanted to be upfront that we're going to be talking about the course, you know, full disclosure. However, we also talk about a lot of Will's philosophy towards production and mixing. So even if you have no interest in the course uh, or you already bought it or, or whatever, if you're a fan of Will's or just a fan of great production, I still think you'll get a lot out of this episode. That said, I introduce you, Will Putney. All right, Will Putney, welcome back to the URM podcast. What's up, man? How are you? Doing very, very well. Enjoying month nine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel you there. I, I noticed you have less beard today. Uh, You know, it's one of those things where... There's less of me overall, and uh, I'm enjoying the way my face looks. There you go. Well, congrats on that. I mean, you did the same thing too, right? Yeah, probably not to the extent you just went through, but... No, no, you didn't have like a biker beard, but like uh, you had a bigger beard before you dropped all that weight. Yeah, it was getting... I guess I guess I did. Yeah, now that I think about it, it just works better now. Keep it tight now, you the know? The sexy closer cut. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> well, you know what it was? Okay, so I was uh, hanging out with a girl, and we were watching Hoarders. And some dude was in one of the interviews. He had this, like, super wild beard, and just, like, nasty beard. And she was like, look, he's got your beard. And I was like, no. Nope. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's like a sign. I love it. Yeah, I got that weird sinking feeling in my stomach. And it was like, bummer. Yeah. Well, it, you're wearing it well, so. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> bit, of a, bit of a life upgrade. That's cool. Thank you. I appreciate it. So, reason I wanted to do this is because uh, 
we just released the course we made with you, how it's done. I just wanted to talk about it for a little bit because people who are in URM know about it and anyone who's seen the ads or seen the posts has seen about it. But I'm sure there's some people who only listen to the podcast who would be pissed off if they didn't hear about this since it closes in five days from now. I know that I'll end up getting some pissed off emails. I just wanted to tell them about it. So I'll just give you guys an intro. Like if you've seen my Monuments Bootcamp, which I know a lot of you guys have, you know that we basically took Monuments start to finish on a song. And it was really cool, really proud of it. Great for 2016. And that's what we based what we did with Will off of. However, there's one big difference. Well, two big differences. First of all, it's Will, not me. And Will is way better than me. But then there's also the other fact. And here's me not being funny. The thing with Monuments is that we were re-recording a song that was already released. So there's no pressure on the band. They just showed up, got paid and played. There's pressure on me to make a cool course, but no pressure, no real life kind of pressure. This situation of the course we made with uh, with Will was a real-life situation where uh, things were on the line. We're talking about a band's career, the label's expectations, fans' expectations, and obviously Will's expectations for what's going to come out of it. And you throw those elements into into the situation, and that changes everything because then you're not just sitting there trying to curate a tutorial or something. It's actually literally what the name is, how it's done. So that's the big difference, I think, which also will, by the way, is uh, it's pretty amazing that you didn't go nuts having to both <laughs> deal with them and deal with us. Yeah, well, I've been multitasking for a number of years now, so you get some time management skills under your belt when in this career. You know, it didn't break me mentally like I thought it potentially could have. It, it was okay, and I think doing it with a band that I was comfortable with obviously helped a bit too. If it was a bunch of strangers walking into the studio for the first time, I feel like that would have been a more tense version of this course. So it was cool that I had my buddies on board for the ride with me too. I feel like maybe they cut me a little slack, but regardless, I mean, we were literally under on like under the gun to make a song in a few days that didn't exist beforehand. And yeah, we did it and you got to record it all happen. Well, so, okay. So in case I didn't mention it, uh, the band in question is Thy Artist Murder. Sick Australian band, if you haven't heard them, though. I'm sure you've heard them if you're listening to this podcast. And, you, I mean, you guys have a long-standing relationship, so the rapport was there. I'm sure that if it was a bunch of strangers, this would not have been possible. Yeah, I think we still could have done it. I think it would have been... I mean, on, under those time constraints? Different bands have different personalities. I mean, that's how I work. So whoever, now that I kind of think about it, whoever walked through the door, we were getting it done in that amount of time and... It didn't, doesn't really matter, I guess, if I if they're my best buddies or I don't even know them. That was the project that I got hired for, so we would have got, got it done. But yeah, I think it was a little more... I think just the fact that I was with my friends kept me from going insane, <laughs> you know. But uh, yeah, it was really intense. I, um, I've never been so under the microscope while simultaneously trying to do my job. You know, there's literally... I couldn't touch a knob without Nick being like, what are you doing? Can you move over? Can I get an angle of that? You know, it's like every step of dialing tones and working through the whole process of producing a record. I was like 
oh, I have to explain myself while I go. I didn't think about that, how that was going to add time to my day. You know, think, just think about performing a task. Think about all the tasks you perform in a day and then stopping after each one to talk to a camera and say what it is you're doing. It's like that time adds up, man. That was not factored in for sure. Not just not just that, but making sure that you're doing it at the right angle so that it can be filmed. I was like, oh, yeah, they'll just we'll just go with the flow. And then I realized we all did like right off the bat, like, oh, no, no, we have to like go into detail on each part. So, yeah, every every task that goes into making a record now it takes three times as long you know but it was a cool experience it was it was a nice challenge to see if i can knock it all out you know i like that we did it with an international band because it's like the flights are booked there's no turning back <laughs> like it's not like you oh, gotta get it done you guys could drive home tomorrow yeah we really had a deadline you know so uh yeah it was cool to see it it was cool to see it all play out how did you manage to keep yourself in the flow while having to basically split your brain between doing the actual, not doing like some half-assed job for a tutorial, you know, like doing a real job for real recording while also not just like half-ass explaining things, like actually explaining things. How, like, how did you balance that in your head? Like, giving 100% to both. Well, I wanted to make the course as cool as possible, you know? So it was like, I signed up for it. I knew what I was in for. I didn't want to half-ass it really. So it was, you know, to me, it was as important as making the record. Cause if I say I'm going to do something, I want to try to make it as cool as possible. So in my, I'm just driven by my own, you know, my like sort of drive to be at, you know to put out cool products and make cool records and just do everything as best as i can so it doesn't really i don't feel like i was gonna cut corners you know like for me it's hard to cut corners at anything that i'm gonna put my name on and uh it, i didn't have to really think about it i was just like oh so it's this just the job that's just, the, just job. the way i have to do it if i want to get it done right you know so I always believe in like, it doesn't matter if it sucks. It only matters what, you know, what the end product is, what people hear, what people watch, you know? So getting that whole process to me is just a means to an end. So it was like, well, you just have to do it like this because this is how it comes out good, you know? If people are curious, just go to nailthemix.com slash how it's done. It closes November 2nd, 2020. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> you don't have much time. But that said, so the course is divided up into eight sections. Pre-pro, uh, guitar, bass, vocals, drums, editing, mix prep, mixing. Some of these sections are super, super fucking long. But I just kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about what's in each of the sections, just so people know. Um there's one thing that I should mention first. There's a second band, and it's your band, Fit for an Autopsy. And the reason, tell me if this, uh, if the, if I'm articulating this well, reason that we have Fit for an Autopsy in there, besides the fact that Fit for an Autopsy is cool, is because thy art, as awesome as they are, there are stylistic limitations. Just there's trappings in that genre. Like you can make the most badass die art record in the world, but it might be missing a few of the things that you would normally do on like 70 other records, you know? Sure. And I feel like honestly, we could have supplemented it with a variety of different bands to show yeah. some other techniques. Cause die art is a very extreme metal band that has a particular sound. And if you only learned, 
I mean, I, I'm, I think this course gives you a pretty broad education based on like what some techniques could be to record, get guitar tones, get drum tones, mixing techniques that could apply across the board. You know, there's plenty of that, but the actual source material is a bit pigeonholed in a sense where there's only there are limitations to what we yeah, would it's do. A, it's ex- extreme you know. metal. So I just knew my, my band was around, and I was like, you know what? I, there's a couple things that I can mix into this course that Fit does that Thy Art doesn't do in sonically and stuff. So I just use that just to grab some extra detail to fill in some of the gaps, you know. And, um, you know, like I said, it could have been interchangeable with a lot of different bands, but I knew there were a couple crucial things where I was like, if I'm going to put a recording class out, we have to cover this. And if we're not doing it with Thy Art, then at least I've got to get somebody else in there to sort of supplement it. We made sure that it's uh, comprehensive and not just a. Uh how to make the most badass extreme recording, but just how to how to actually do a badass recording period. Yeah, I like the holes that we filled in with the supplemental material. And I feel like now I have like, you know, if you're into any kind of production that I do, I feel like it gives you a bit more insight for a few of the other tricks and stuff. So, so let's talk about pre-pro for a bit. It's a pretty good section. One thing that I've noticed is that while I personally think that pre-pro is like, I've always thought it's like maybe the most important thing because without, you know, it's like you're trying to build a house on a shaky foundation. doesn't matter how nice your walls and furniture are. Shit could just crumble. I've always seen pre-pro that way. And from watching you do pre-pro, you go pretty deep in there. You do whatever's necessary. So could you talk to me a little bit about your philosophy regarding pre-production? Sure. I mean, I do agree with you. It's probably the most important part of the record because, you know, bad songs just make bad records. There's no way around it. The earliest and most critical step of fixing bad songs or taking good songs and making them better or as good as they can possibly be is pre-production. And I think a lot of people don't put a lot of stock in it because they're not used to that kind of environment in a studio or maybe they hadn't seen a producer who was that hands-on. But I mean, a lot of the great producers you know, all my favorite producers put that value in pre-production too. And for the, for the right reason, it's, it's really where all the problems get solved. All the songs take shape the right way. The themes of the record, like the whole vibe, it's, it's where you check all the boxes to make sure you're going to have a good record before you even start to record, you know? And I've spent, there are sessions where I've spent longer in pre-production than actually tracking a record because it just needed the work or it was more important or we were just in that kind of groove and things were going the right way. And I've definitely put a lot of stock in that, you know, and even in this particular course, I mean, Die Art didn't have a lot of time to really prepare a song. This was like squeezed in, in between touring and stuff like that. And and they were in and out so fast that when they got in, like we did a ton to what, how that song started to how it ended. It's like, it's two different songs, you know? And you get to see the whole process. Yeah, I mean, sometimes a band just kicks ass and they come in and everything's great and it's easy. And, and sometimes you have to sit there and write a record with a band. You know, it's like it really runs the gamut of, you know, it, it could be so intense at, at, at times. And, and I feel like it's the necessary step to make a good record, you know. I think it also needs to be said that it's not just a, a creative thing. It's also a technical thing and logistical thing, like in the pre-pro. Even if the band does have their shit together and... Well, 
most bands you work with have their shit together. Let's just say the music is totally ready, but you still need to map out the record. You still need to prepare exactly how many heads are going to be needed. Like whatever technical stuff you're going to have to worry about, it's a lot better to figure that out up front than to be wasting time during the session to do that. So I think that there's also, there's both the creative aspect of pre-pro, but then the technical aspect of just setting yourself for a job that requires resources. Sure. I I tend not to think about that stuff anymore. Like our we're such an we're in such a groove at the studio with sort of the technical side and prep side of things that those usually just become afterthoughts to us. So I never really talk about it, but I mean we do there's so much of that that gets done on day one, day two of the record where we, you know, like clockwork, we just iron out all these things. All right, how do we get tent? What, where's your session? What's it look like? How do we build our session? Are we doing this live? Are we doing this in the computer? What kind of gear do we need? What shape are the instruments in? Do you have all your shit? Do you need to go to the store to get more strings? Do you need your bass intonated? Like all of those little things, we just kind of, we go through all of it at the beginning of the matters. record. Yeah, we solve all the problems as fast as we can right away so we could just get to work. And so on week two, when we're right in the middle of something, we don't realize like, oh, okay, we can't work today because we forgot this thing needs to get fixed and now we're just going to sit around, you know? So it, it definitely, um, it really helps you streamline your workflow for the rest of the record once you get all that tech stuff out of the way early but um yeah it's like when you find that balance i mean you see us go through all that on this one song with the course which is great because when you when you kind of get in that rhythm and you're making a lot of records and you get all this stuff done efficiently it's it's really nice because you can just get to work fast you know and i think that's that's really why we have things set up to run so efficiently like we we don't want to get bogged down with technical stuff anymore we just want to make records and do the thing we're passionate about doing you know so yeah i i'm happy with all the detail we went into on that side too in the course yeah just a side note one thing i've noticed about creative professionals that i've known in my life uh whether it's like a fine artist or video maker or director or producer or you know, professional musician whatever uh the ones who are prolific tend to have a way to get all these technical like the annoying tasks, very systematized and out of the way, and they put real time into it. And I'm into just having a system to where you don't even have to think about it. You just do it at the beginning of a project uh, so that you can put the max brain power into what actually matters, which is the art you're creating. Sure. I mean, there's a really great section in the course with Jim, our guitar tech, where he kind of goes through the yep. crazy level of detail on how to set up a guitar and all that. And I realized a few years ago, because I could kind of intonate a guitar, I could restring a guitar, I can do all of these things. But I realized a while ago, I was like, I should get an expert. I should streamline my time so that yeah. I can just focus on being creative and making the songs. And it's like, so we have all these little systems in place at the studio where different people have different tasks. And once a record comes in, we see what we need and it all gets split up and it gets done as efficiently as possible. And it's been great working like that because, you know, I don't want to sit there for six hours and intonate a guitar and polish frets and you know work on a truss rod when i could be like trying to make this song better that's what the band really hired me for they don't care 
who sets the guitar up if it's set up correctly. You know, so we learn to like be more efficient by prioritizing what's important on a record and just having other experts get other things done. You know, and that that's been a you know you'll kind of see where you should put your t- like I think a, v- a valuable part of this course is being able to see how I prioritize time and what I put stock in you know and um yeah that like learning that through the years of making records is making me a definitely a more efficient producer because I've discovered where I should put my strengths and where I should let other people handle certain things so it, it's pretty it's a pretty interesting way to look at it in that sense well, I think one of the keys here that you said is you do know how to kind of set up guitars. Like you could, you know, you could get away with it if you needed to. You, it's not like you don't know how. However, you recognize that there's people who this is actually their full-time job who love being luthiers or guitar techs who will do an incredible job. And uh, people are hiring you for a certain reason. And that reason isn't to set up their guitars. I think... Knowing exactly how to delegate and use your time wisely is a very, very important skill to pick up. I think actually early on in a producer's job, they feel like they have to take on every single role, which there's no way you can be an expert at everything. That's just, there's nobody that's an expert at everything. Yeah, we talk about the value of time a lot. And when yep. we're looking at projects, we kind of sit down and think about that. Like, all right, we could do this. It would take this long. But what if we just did the thing we're good at? That's what we always say. Like, or we could just do the thing we're good at and then like it pays the bills and that pays for that. And it's, you know, it's like a cut, there's like a a give and take with some of that stuff, but the value of, of time and what you're actually really good at and what people want to hire you for. I mean, you, you have to maximize that for people because then you give the bands the most attention. You can stay in a creative space longer. You're not, you know, sidetracked with uh, with details that you might not need to be involved in and uh i think the bands appreciate it more too because you're just more available to them yep all right let's move on talk about guitar some a uh, real quick uh you know sounds interesting to anybody nail the mix.com slash how it's done all right the guitar section you go pretty deep on it one of my uh staff members who we make their staff members watch everything so that they know how to communicate it to people right and one of the things that this guy said, and this is someone who has had like a legit career with guitar gear, repping it to like large stores. And he actually, he's one of those dudes who knows guitar gear, knows guitar tone. And what he was saying was that he thought he kind of understood how to get guitar tone, but the level of detail that you took things to with the multiple amps, the multiple mics, the multiple cabs, and worked it all in a cohesive way, it showed him a level that he didn't know was possible. So let's talk about your guitar approach a little, because it's uh, it's pretty intense. Yeah, um, well, that's nice. Tell your staff member, thank you. <laughs> but I will. I, to me, it doesn't seem that crazy you just do what you do yeah but it's just it's been the evolution of like where i learned how to kind of dial guitar tones and you know the multiple amp thing obviously a lot of people who follow me know that i used to work with machine this is like some of the theory behind tracking that 
came out of his studio earlier on, you know, the way, the way the phase interaction between multiple mic sources sort of created, can, can create a denser guitar tone and how you use different mics or different amps, different placements to sort of EQ your, your source signal guitar tone, you know? So for me, it's always revolved around finding the right amp and the right guitar, the right amp, the right pickups. We sort of kind of have enough knowledge in the world when a band walks in to know like, okay, this will probably, this kind of setup will probably be cool as a starting point, you know? And then using like the array of mics that we have in different positions and stuff and shooting, doing some pretty detailed shootouts to see like what's going to be the best result for this particular thing. And you learn your tricks over the years and stuff. So I guess I get to skip a few steps in the video because I have, it's not 10 years of me shooting out every piece of gear and every mic. And besides what good will that do anybody? They, they need to put in their own 10 years. Yeah. You just see like some go two spots where I've already landed with my own homework. And I think that's Mm -hmm. pretty cool because it's a bit of a cheat sheet in a way where it's like, hey, it took me a long time to figure out these couple combos work really cool for this. And here it is, you know, but um, yeah, it's 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 always back to your ears with guitar stuff for me, because I've heard Lately, man, I've heard such cool guitar tones with such simple setups, and I know we have a lot of gear, and it's a pretty intimidating thing if you're not really, you know, if you're not a full-time producer, you're not as deep into guitar research that as we are at the studio, but it, a lot of it is, you'll see in the videos too, is me just listening to what's happening, you know, and trying to make a decision based on what I think is just cool sounding. And in the end, sometimes I'll notice I'm using like one mic and maybe two mics, you know, but it's like I've muted and unmuted on my mixer and I found something that I think sounds good. And it's not overly complicated in the end. The setup is complicated because I want to try all these things and I have have the options to change the blend between amps and the blend between microphones and all this stuff, it, you know, before I commit to a sound. But it, it could be a very simple setup still. It's a, it, you know, I, I get asked about guitar stuff a lot. That's why I wanted to get there with the conversation because it doesn't always have to be complicated. Sometimes there's a simple setup that kicks ass, you know. Um, but you do see like a pretty deep one on this course, which was cool, yeah. you know, because what how we work through it. And then, you know, the next phase of like incorporating pedals and how different overdrives and distortions can change the character of the same amp tone. So part by part, you can sort of have a, have a slight vibe change in your guitar tracking without like fully breaking down a setup is pretty useful stuff too. You know, there's just, there's a lot in this and I'm, I'm glad we went deep enough, you know. <laughs> the interesting thing about what you said about how sometimes a guitar tone is just simple. One of the things that actually I think is really valuable about this course, if nothing else, if like the, if you get nothing else out of it is uh, seeing how somebody who's at the top of their game decides that something's good enough and something's not. Because at the end of the day, say the guitar tone you arrived at is super complex or say that it's super simple, right? Like a 5150 with a 57 on a recto cab or some shit like that with a tube screamer. Like, you know, the standard standard fare that can really kick ass sometimes. Either way, no matter which way you took to get to the final result, you're ending at a final result that your ear tells you is good. And where I think a lot of people go wrong is they don't know how to decide what's good. 
Like they don't understand either. They don't understand what good is yet, or they haven't learned to trust themselves or they haven't, they don't have a guide. I mean, like, you know, like you had a mentor, lots of people had mentors. Andy Sneap had a mentor, you know, you had Colin Richardson, like a lot of producers who have done very well at some point in their career had somebody who like, you know, even if it was for just six months or something who kind of like helped show some of the really important ropes. And so I think if someone is kind of just on their own in a basement somewhere, like just kind of in the dark with nobody to show them, like, this is what a good take sounds like. This is what a good tone is. Oftentimes I find people will get one and then just overshoot it completely or not even get close at all, but not know the difference, which is the key, not know the difference and not know how to know the difference. Yeah. I mean, I've seen that before and sometimes we work with people with, you know, unfortunately where I'm like, this guy's really talented, but he actually just doesn't know what's cool, you know, and, and the, you kind of have to figure that out. And I think it's like, you have to study producers or records or productions that you like, and you have to ask yourself, like, what is, why do I like this? Like, what is cool about this? And then sort of that, it's like that internal homework that you do through the years where you're trying to find your identity in this world, you kind of have to just find things that you like and understand why it's cool, you know? And I think that gets lost on a lot of people off initially. And I think it can create confusion when you go into producing a record because it's like, what to you makes this band cool? Like what kind of sonic landscape can you provide that's going to make this a cooler sounding record or make this band sound cooler, you know? And um, yeah, I learned early on that it was important to figure these details out before I let bands trust me with their music because you don't want to be an unqualified person in that in that field. You know, it takes a lot of your own research to like follow what's happening in production, what trends are cool, what isn't cool, like what you should avoid, what's o- what's played out, what's oversaturated. Like I could kind of like I could hear a record and know if I think people are going to like it by the production sometimes, you know, and then like it usually checks out because I'm like, we stay dialed into this kind of stuff. So it's on like a cultural level too, aside from the technical side of it. And obviously working with a producer who's cool or trying to learn from, you know, your favorite guys and see their tips and see what they like is a valuable part of it. But a lot of it is just understanding the culture of the scenes you work in. So yep, that when I you sit there and you're agree. like, oh, I like this because it's kind of like this thing that this band does or this reminds me of this era of, of tones. And it's like understanding all that stuff, it, it all goes in. It, it should all be swimming in your head when you get in front of an amp or a microphone and you start to design guitar tones or design productions, you know, so. Yeah. So what I'm hoping is when people see the guitar section is not that they say, I have to have a rig exactly like this and then try to imitate it because I think that if they try to do that, they're going to be disappointed because they don't have your particular brain wiring that got your tastes and cultural understanding to the point where your rig is just an extension of how you hear things. But what I would like for them to see is A, that this is possible. B, this is how you come to your decisions and hopefully they can learn from that and it can guide them on how to make their own decisions and how to come to their own conclusions 
on what they like and what they don't like rather than just see what you're doing and try to copy it because that's not going to work anyways. Yeah, and I, I use a lot of gear in this course because I've just been acquiring it over the years and I pick up stuff that I like. But You don't need it, though. You don't need it. And I didn't always have all this stuff. It was like I had all this stuff yesterday. You know, like there, it's it's just been me picking up pieces over the years when I was able to afford to if I got paid to make records. But a lot of my, a lot of records that people like that I make, I had a third of this, a quarter of this stuff, you know, and it's like, I'll do a mix today and compare it to some of the older stuff. And I'm like, they're both cool. It didn't matter that I have more shit now, you know? So I, there's a lot of gear coverage in this course. Cause I do want people to understand where the strengths of analog gear can can really be and how I use them to do things that I prefer over the computer. But just because I prefer it by that little bit, it doesn't mean it's the only way to make something sound good, you know? And I'm sure that's a redundant topic at this point now with the URM people, but, you know, I don't want people to be intimidated. It never by, gets old. <laughs> yeah, I just don't want yeah. people to be intimidated by all the stuff we use in the course because none of it really is necessary to make a cool record. It's just extra sugar on top because I prefer certain things, you know. Let's not forget, you also use an amp sim on the course. Too. Sure, yeah. So it's not, is you don't just use the tube stuff or the, the analog stuff. You use plugins, like... You use a lot of stuff that everybody can afford. Yeah, there's I'm um, on really economically friendly stock logic plugins on a lot of channels on this mix and my amp sims, you know, half the guitar tone probably in the end and yeah, there's plenty of stuff in the box that's cheap or free or affordable that, you know, gets you pretty damn far with this production. Yeah, I want to move on topics, but I just I just, at the risk of getting redundant, I just want to drive this home. You're not using that gear because you need it. You're doing it because you like it. And that's a very big distinction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So bass. Well, first of all, nailthemix.com slash how it's done. The bass section, in my opinion, is really, really cool because, you know, we show obviously the how you did it for thy art, which is kind of like a standard way about going about things. But then also did this whole section with all the pedals and the cabs and all that. And so it's actually a very robust bass section. The reason I'm bringing this up is because I feel like bass is one of those elements in metal production that is so crucial it's like the hidden in my opinion it's like the hidden weapon it like it gives guitar teeth it makes the drums hit harder it like pulls everything together it it's like the difference between an album being a eunuch or not but it's overlooked it's overlooked and almost an afterthought a lot of times and it's anything but an afterthought for you sure i definitely I like to have bass-heavy productions. If if you hear a record and there's not a lot of bass on it, it's usually because somebody else is telling me to turn it down, <laughs> not <laughs> me. But yeah, late, like towards, I don't know where it was, maybe five or six years ago, I realized that I wasn't paying attention to bass as much. And it, I think it changed so much for me. I think it's when I, did, I had switch monitors that changed how I was looking at my low mids. And I realized that like I there's so much more cool stuff I could be doing here. You know, I was like an NS10 guy forever. And then I was like jumping around between monitors. But a lot of what I really noticed on all of them was like 
oh wow, the bass picture is so much more dynamic, and I I hadn't really been prioritizing this as much as I should be, you know. And uh, I really invested in figuring out how to come up with cool new bass tones and tricks and things like that. And now, you know, I'm really happy with do. I'm, I, I really think it helped me like kind of level up on my productions over the past few years for sure. And uh, yeah, on this one, you know, uh, it, we definitely like go through a few different ways I can do stuff using pedals using the plug-in like some of the amp stuff it, it's it's a little bit of everything in a really cool way but i do think it's one of the most important parts of metal productions nowadays too it, it is like that hidden sort of secret weapon on why stuff hits hard and sounds heavy and you know it's funny because we always do we typically do bass after guitars and even when I'm dialing guitar, sometimes I'll put some demo pre-pro bass in because I'm like, the picture's now incomplete to me until I hear bass in, in, in the band, you know? And we always say, like, when we finally get to track bass on a record, we're like, okay, now it's when the record starts to sound good. <laughs> I always be, used to feel the same way. Yeah, yeah. It's like, so, yeah, I wanted to, I like, capitalize on that feeling now because I'm like, yeah, this is the part that makes this feel complete now you know to me but yeah it was awesome to go through all that stuff on the course bass is one of those things where now it's like it's i'm in like the honeymoon stage of all the exploring of bass stuff it so, is so yeah. much fun one of my favorite sections in the course is that part with the pedals and there's look there's nothing wrong with this i know that a lot of people you know like pro tools users for instance will like put in a di dial the sans amp get a sick tone and just roll with that and that's fine there's so many great records have been made that way but the sonic palette that you had available to you with the pedals and changing settings from part to part of each of the song and like really really getting in there with like uh tweaking that bass tone and just getting it amazing before before it was even recorded not just putting in a di and dialing in a sans amp and thinking i'll tweak it later like getting incredible bass tones that each match the part you're on before you even track them i think was should be i hope very eye-opening to people who don't realize that a you can do that or b who hear hear a lot of people who have been around a while be like get the tone at the source and they're like oh those old guys oh yeah <laughs> for bass for me and even for guitars for anything you want to track you want to hear back what is as close to the finished product as possible you know it helps me make decisions easier on takes that are good or bad it doesn't reveal surprises later if you get into a reamp situation or you try to redesign something like a lot of this was about getting good tones right off the rip because that's a lot of how i produce records if i have the choice that's usually how i like to make records you know so yeah it's it's really crucial for bass especially especially bass in thy art where there's like sort of this grindier more high-end style tone it's like it's the hands and the take is very affected you know by like listening to where how the pick is attack hits with the bass and the drums on this particular production if i put a different bass tone over this and then went to redesign it later i might have been left with a bass performance that doesn't work anymore you know so it's like i knew we had to have something right off the bat that was really really close to being done sounding and um you know i like to take that approach with 
most of my tracking, but with bass, it's definitely one of the most critical instruments nowadays like that. Um, but yeah, the pedal, the, my favorite part of pedals has now been bass distortion. Like out of everything I do with all the little toys I have and stuff, like lining up all those pedals and having that inner low end interaction change from part to part in a song is like one of my favorite parts of the sound design nowadays. So I'm really glad we got that in this course. And we've been doing a sneak preview webinar thing for this where, you know, we'll, we'll play different clips from throughout the course interspersed just to show people what's in it. And uh, when, there's a little bit of the bass section. And every time it gets there, the fucking chat lights up. <laughs> That's awesome. Like, they love that shit. Like, I really think that even though it's overlooked, the moment that somebody actually understands like they hear it for the first time, how cool it can be and what a difference it does make. Like you can never, can never go back. I think. I think the most my phone blew up last year with people like wanting to nerd out was when I, we, a four year strong put a single out and it starts with bass. It's like a bass and drum thing. Mm -hmm. And I got so many messages that we, more than any record I put out last year, for sure. Of people like, dude, that bass tone, that bass tone, that bass tone. I'm like, when the fuck did everybody start caring about bass distortion? It was cool. All it takes is hearing a cool bass tone. People love it. Yeah, like that was the hit of last year for me with all the with with all the engineers out there. It was so funny. But yeah, it's just a bass guitar and a floor tom, and everyone's like, "This is amazing." I'm like, "All right." Yeah, also, there it I is. also think is it's it's hard, man. I think it's hard a hard instrument to wrestle. It doesn't always play nice. It's the one that makes things amazing or it ruins stuff. You know that this is like, it's like the fine line between a good balanced mix with all the things you want and then mud and you know bad <laughs> i don't even yeah, know how to, exactly. yeah, it's 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 an advanced instrument to mix into a record for sure because of where the you know where the core frequencies of it sit and how it needs to be treated to work with everything you know but when it does it's the best so absolutely i'm glad we got to flex as much as we could with you know some of the bass stuff in this course because it is pretty valuable yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, nailthemix.com slash I was done is where you pick the course up. Uh, you mentioned drums, so let's move on to drums. Uh, you didn't do drums first on this, which, interestingly enough, I actually think that's the way techniques evolve over time, order of operations. I think that we're going to enter a time period, maybe a few years from now, 10, 20, who knows, where the norm is to do drums last. Yeah, for certain genres. For certain genres, for certain genres, of course. Yeah, yeah. I, there are, you know, there's plenty of bands I work with where we get their tempos and takes off of like initial live performances, you know. And that'll, that'll never go away. But what, I guess what I mean is the idea of doing drums last is not going to be like a weird thing. Yeah, so where it really applies is when bands write in computers because mm -hmm. things are mapped out, tempos are there, you can make the adjustments there, all the files are there. You know, there are a lot of bands that just build their whole records in computers now. Most, especially in like metal, a lot of kids in, our, in this world, that's how they start their writing processes now, you know, and then it gets broken out to the rest of the band and the drummer works on the MIDI and the guitar player writes a part and, you know, that it's all getting worked on in a computer. So when it's like that and it's not even at a point where a band could even like play it yet, 
it, it makes sense to just stay in the computer for that level of pre-production and then doing drums last so it helps you maximize the amount of time you still have to play with the arrangements. It gives the drummer more time to actually learn these songs that he maybe never played because his guitar player wrote impossible parts in a death metal <laughs> laptop project and now he has to go figure it out and then we have to go back in and, and change tempos and drum parts so it makes sense. But it's this, it's this evolving thing in a computer that lets you have the flexibility to play with your record through all the way through the end. Because once you do drums, it sets a lot of stuff in stone. You know, it is the one downside to doing drums first is that in a week, if we have an idea, it's not so easy to go back and recut a drum part. You know, if you're fortunate enough to be able to leave a drum session up for a month, that's cool. But most people aren't. I mean, I can't even really do that at the studio. You know, we've run into that before where we're like, damn it, I wish we had the drum information from when we did drums first to be able to like make this edit. But now it's like a pain in the ass or it's impossible, you know, and being able to live in a floating tempo and arrangement, you know, scenario like with a laptop, it does give you all kinds of flexibility. So I do see a lot of bands I work with doing that now. It's probably kind of split down the middle. I'd say like half the bands I work with were doing drums last at this point, you know, and the other half is kind of more of a traditional band in the room approach still. And they both work, you know, and they both have their pros and cons. There's really no one right answer for any of this stuff. It's just whatever's going to work with the personalities and band you're working with. But um, with the Thy Art one, uh, clearly it was great to do drums last because, you know, they had just like come in and no one had even learned this song or played it. We were still developing the song in the studio. So finishing a song and then 15 minutes later, handing it to the drummer being like, all right, let's go track it. <laughs> like, it's just not in the cards for this, you know? So seems ridiculous when you put it that way. Yeah. It's insane. Like if we just finished a song that he had never played ever in his life because the pre-production was in a computer, what benefit would we stand to gain from, okay, let's start tracking drums right now. Like he doesn't even know, he doesn't even, he may not have even heard what we did yet, you know? And so we, we did him last. It gave him a couple of days to sit, rehearse, work out drum fills. He caught some tempo stuff that us dumb guitar players, you know, kind of put in. He's like, hey, this is like a little off the rails here because I'm playing it now. And Jesse's very good, but he's like, this is on like a, there's a, there's a speed issue here. You guys like overdid it. We're like, okay, you're right. We did. We're idiots. We play guitar, you know? So we, we were able to like work on the song still with him. And then a few days later, we had a better tempo set up. He knew what he was doing. We had a much more efficient drum session and it came out way better because we did drums last. So in this case, it was great. You know. Yeah, and uh, just for people wondering, we go into the miking, we go into the tuning, we go into everything that you would expect, basically. So it's a pretty detailed section. It was it was a it was a very thorough drum session, especially with the type of drumming in Thy Art too. Aside from how we capture the sounds, the post treatment of the drums and how, and the editing section is really awesome too. I mean, these are difficult drums to 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 work with. So it's definitely you know as advanced as it could get as far as like how do you make sense of this chaos? You know, you get to really see our version of kind of everything on how we could handle this. Yeah, the editing section is dense too, for sure. Just out of curiosity, man, I feel like 
I want to know your opinion. My opinion on editing drums, especially these kinds of drums, is that there's the technical side of it, of course, where you have to know how to edit drums, but you also have to have a musical understanding of how these types of drums are supposed to feel and what a drummer is intending to do. Yeah, there's a good balance in this genre of needs to be tight and competitively modern in that sense. But I like when records sound like I'm listening to a drummer still and not, oh, that's clearly just edited drum machine style production. You know, those feel very sterile to me. And some people like them, but for the way we approach productions is we try to leave stuff if we can, you know. When we do these types of drum sessions where they're last, we already have a lot of stuff to the grid, so it does get tricky because the, this style of record was kind of designed to be like tight on the grid. It's technical yeah. death metal. It's just what it is. But with a, with some other records, we can be a little looser. And especially if we're doing drums first, it's a lot easier to let, you know, the guitars play to the f- drums then that are a little off the beat or off the grid and looser. And some records we've done, we only fix what's broken. We don't even get into some of this beat detective stuff and how dense the editing is in this course doesn't even exist with some records. We just get takes and we're like, Oh, that's good. Maybe just bump that one. Yeah, okay, that's done. You know, so there's like, and that's the super musical side of drum editing that, you know, is fun and you have to kind of understand where pocket sits and how to even out a performance without like over editing it. You know, it's, it's, it can get tricky, but I don't know if you've noticed, but most of the people who, you know, I've, I'm fortunate enough where over the past few years, I haven't had to do a lot of the editing because I have a great engineer, Steve, but even before him, a lot of the people who edited drums for me or for machine were drummers. You know, a big part of that was like, I'm just going to have the sense. drummer do it. Cause he also understands what's what's correct you know what sounds good and correct there's just the nuances to it you know where you have to choose what can be left alone and sound good and you have to and then the balance between making stuff edited to be tight enough to be technical death metal in this world and stuff you know you can go too far and leave records too loose and kids think it's sloppy and they don't understand that that's just how a drummer sounds you know so we've (laughs) Yeah, we've lowered the bar on metal production where it has to be so tight. Then we just created, it's producers' faults. We just created all this work for ourselves. <laughs> 20 years ago, somebody just should have went, no, we can't do that to the right band. And then we all wouldn't have this step anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the burden would have been lifted, but alas, here we are. The thing too is uh, I think you also have to know what the limitations of the software are. And so where the software is going to do dumb stuff. So... That's why you have to musically understand what you're doing too. Even if you're just doing something that's a hyper-technical gridded record, you still have to have a musical understanding because you can't let the software decide for you. It'll make some weird decisions. Yeah, there's, I mean, I, I wasn't even thinking of it like that, but yeah, I mean, having any of the kind of automated beat detective style, you know, drum editing things, they can't just go on their like be let off the leash you have to like comb through all of that every step of the way same with you know laying samples or midi notes or some of the phase stuff like all the technical stuff we'll get into with editing and mix prep where it's like there is no like one-stop solution that's super easy and automated you just have to go manual and make sure everything's right by hand you know yeah no way around it 
All right, nailthemix.com slash how it's done. Let's talk about vocals. It's weird to say this because it's all so important, but I feel like in lots of ways, man, if if that's not nailed, no one's going to listen to it. Yeah, they're what yeah. make... the. It's what makes a band good or bad. That's what we always say yeah. at the studio. It's like the band can kick ass if the singer sucks, the band sucks, and vice versa. We used to say it was drummers, but now we think it's just now it's just singers. They that's really what. Yeah, I mean, there is no hit song without the vocals being good, even in death metal. Yeah, and nothing connects with kids more than the right lyric and the you know the, that's like how you make songs translate and. Um, yeah, other than the pre-production stage, I think the vocal stage on records is probably the most important part. And I think just like bass, what I noticed is you get it sounding pretty mix-ready. I mean, you do other stuff to it too, obviously, but it sounds pretty damn there before you ever hit record with a vocalist, I've noticed. Yes, it's like what we talked about before, just getting the source tones set up the right way so I can hear takes the right way. It's very important for vocals because um, the way I use compression and the way for screamers, the way they push into certain stuff is like a part of where I can hear the voice break in a certain way where based on that, I'll decide on what takes I think are cool, you know? And it's like, if I came in with a much drier signal that wasn't beat up like that, I wouldn't notice certain intricacies in the vocal and stuff later if I applied yep. that kind of processing. So I do get it pretty much there. I mean, my vocal chain plus the couple, like the actual analog chain plus the few plugins on the computer, I'd say 99 out of 100 times doesn't change in the mix. Like I'll add some EQ or I'll put some effects on or, you know, there's, I'll do the bells and whistles to it, but the actual way it sounds like the way it's perceived, how much compression and distortions on it and stuff, it rarely even changes much. It's kind of like what that take I got is what, that's it. That's what it sounds like, you know? And, and that helps me make really, I think it helps me make the best decisions possible when I'm auditioning takes or vocals. And I think also, man, vocals are such a psychological aspect. Again, making a record is psychological, period, every aspect, because, you know, you're dealing with uh, something that's personal to all of the musicians that they, their whole personal identity is wrapped up in this. But vocals takes that to another level because you're talking because the instrument is the person's body. So it's them. And so I think that the the process of getting them sounding like the best version of themselves and hearing them, themselves that way before they really start tracking is a huge part of getting those takes that are legendary. They, they need to feel like a legend. Yeah, a lot of getting what you need out of a vocalist is mental. Aside from like a guy actually losing his voice and stuff, what, what the difference from day to day between a guy who killed it in the studio and a guy who you know, was, didn't have the greatest day. We're going to go back and recut vocals and stuff. It's usually in his head. It's usually how he was feeling at the time and how that got what, how that led to getting the right take out of him. you know? And I think they're often the crazy ones, you know? Well, you know, like an actor or something. So I try to get him, I try to get a starting point that they just feel really good about where as soon as they, sing or scream into the microphone. They're like, oh, this is awesome. And it just immediately empowers them. They just feel like they're ready to go, you know? And uh, having stuff sound weird just is that 
an early catalyst to just start getting into their head about like it sounds weird is it because i sound weird or is it because it's this and it's just like as soon as they start second guessing what they're doing you start seeing the takes get worse and yeah it's you know it's such a human instrument compared to everything else that happens in a record you really have to cater to that in some way and you see in the thy art session like oh man he is such a beast he we keep it so fun though and yeah. you know the vibe with the way i approach that is like we just have fun because that he cj is a big ball of fun and he just lives if he stays happy and just lives in that world and we're having a good time with it he never even has a second to think about is this, am I doing good? It's like over before. It's not a mental thing because I'm sure he knows what we're doing and he's confident enough in his vocal abilities to not worry about it anyway. He's a great screamer, but you can see that we don't, I don't even really give him a second to think about what's happening. Yeah, don't let him get in his head. Just beast out. Part of it is like that dude gets warm and we get it because when he's in that right spot, you know, he's one of the best and I just want to grab all that as fast as possible. So that's like, it's a fast vocal session for sure. Mm -hmm. But it's like, I could, you know, we saw when it was there and we just went for it, you know? Well, I think it's good to show that sometimes things happen quickly. Like it's not, I don't think that how long something takes indicates no, cutting definitely corners not. or anything. And I actually think that that's a fallacy that a lot of musicians and producers subscribe to that they feel like they need to spend longer on something so that they feel like they're actually getting work done when reality so the magic just happens quickly and you have to understand it when it is happening and go with it all my favorite vocals on my records we are usually like oh we got that in an hour or less you know like all for for sure all like my top 10 like these are the my favorite vocalists these are the coolest things they've done those things happen fast all of them 100% yeah because the, you get the guy in the right state and he's got the right tool and instrument ready to go and all the good shit happens like that, you know? So I've yeah. had dudes sing, we're, you know, the type of tracking process where we're supposed to be singing a line at a time and all of a sudden someone's on fire and I'm like, you're doing like the whole, go, you're doing this whole part now. And the way we normally take like a more clinical approach to, oh, I'll just punch a little bit so you can get your breath and reset and like what in theory would make some of these screaming vocal takes better. I was, you abandoned because you're like, whatever you're doing right now, just like keep doing that you know and, and we stop. wind up ripping through stuff fast sometimes so it's cool yeah. it's a fun vocal section and one of the things like that you guys do is he'll do a take that's just so damn evil and you guys will just laugh and then just keep going it's awesome there's not many that get near cj as far as like the ability to do that so it's always like hilarious to hear uh, on like a raw level like that where you're just it's like jesus christ man like what is living inside of you he's he's wild and it's funny because it, it barely matches it doesn't match his personality either so that's why it's hilarious to me because we're just like goofing off and having fun and like talking about silly stuff and then the scariest thing i've ever heard fills my ears <laughs> and then we go back to making jokes and and I'm like, it's just a hilarious process. I mean, it's it's a ton of fun to do, but it's definitely like, yeah. I mean, you'll see it in you'll see it in the course. Like the way you capture that lightning in a bottle moment is sort of 
you know, what to look for and how to do that. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky I get a guy like CJ, but it's going to happen with a lot of singers out there for people who are, you know, it's just more of a met, how to keep somebody in a good mental state while they're tracking. I think that's very invaluable stuff, you know. Even with a vocalist who's not as good as CJ, if you could keep them in a good mental state, you'll get way better results. Quick pro tip. I know you can't see this, but you can see this. Spindrift Seltzer. Yeah. So it's seltzer, but it's with real fruit juice. Now, I don't know if we were just on the vocal subject. Pineapple juice is really good. A little bit of pineapple juice is really good for a screaming vocalist because it naturally helps you produce more mucus. It kind of lubes the throat up and stuff. Too much is bad because the acid, you'll start to get the acid reflux and stuff. But just a little bit of pineapple juice, it makes you kind of like snotty in the throat, and it's good to like help gargly, distorted stuff. But you don't want a cup of pineapple juice. That's too much. So that's just enough. But So this is like, you know, 10% pineapple juice, and it's delicious, and you can just sip on it while you trek. Well, thank you. Does it taste more like pineapple-hinted sparkling water? It's a pretty thorough pineapple taste. It does taste okay. like you're drinking pineapple juice. It's Obviously, it's got a little watered-down vibe because it's a seltzer, but they're very good. And uh, I've converted a few guys who don't even like seltzer. You know, Brian from Knock Loose, the last session. I fucking love it. The last session we did, he hates seltzer. He calls these pineapple feedback because of the (laughs) the bubbles. He he thinks it's feedback. He's like, it's like feedback (laughs) in my my throat. But uh, he, uh, yeah, this, like, he had a dry day and it wasn't going great and ripped a spin drift and then we killed it. So there we go. That's what, what people used to use whiskey for. Well, if you're a straight edge guy in a hardcore band, you're yeah, drinking I was gonna say this so. is a good uh, this is a good uh, health conscious way to get the same result. That and you get like. hydrated because it's basically yeah. all water, so, which is um, as we know the most important part about staying healthy while you're recording vocals. So it's a two for one deal. Yeah, I'm not so sure that the whiskey uh, approach is the best. I've definitely worked with guys who could only sound good with a shot of whiskey. Oh yeah. It happens. I don't recommend it, but I've seen it. I've seen it work, you know. So I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I've got a few of those sad souls who need their need their bottle so they can get it out of them. But uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend it for the listeners. Spindrift. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about mixing and mix prep. So this mixing section is long. It's actually longer than your nail the mix. It's longer than any Nail the Mix. The reason I'm mentioning this is because Nail the Mix is awesome, but the problem with Nail the Mix, just inherently built into Nail the Mix, is the format limitations. We've got a day. So there's only so far we can go with certain things. Like, sure, we could take two or three days, but Nail the Mix, we book a day. And it's what we can get done in that amount of time. And hopefully we can be as thorough as possible. But there's no way to possibly talk about everything in that amount of time with someone who is very intricate with their mixes. Your Knock Loose Nail the Mix is great. I thought it was fantastic. But uh, this is an order of magnitude deeper than any Nail the Mix mixing section. I'm just, I'm saying that for people who have been subscribed to Nail the Mix forever and are like, cool, I love Will, but like, I already saw his Nail the Mix. Why do I need to see this? Well, first of all, the automation section is eight hours long. (laughs) The automation section alone is the length of an entire Nail the Mix for starters. Sorry. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. Uh, because actually that's something that in Nail the Mix, we've been asked for more of, but the again, because of the limitations on time, you know, by the time it gets to automation, there's like two hours left. It is what it is. Honestly, a lot of my time spent mixing is in the automation stage. And it's like, I do really like what we did with the Not Glue Snail, the mix, but yeah, it was great. also picked a song that was very simple, that didn't require a ton of automation. And in that genre, naturally, it kind of is a living, breathing, live animal and needs a little less in that sense. Um, compared to like a, a, a record, like a Thy Art record. So I knew that going into it, like I wasn't going to be able to show this side of what we really do to that extent. So we spent a lot of time on some cool global stuff with the Not Glue Snail the Mix, which I think was really valuable too. And we do cover all that too. But then, yeah, the detail of technical metal mixing, it might be one of the more detailed styles of music in that sense like the amount of work that you would actually put into the automation side of things on these types of records for me they're the most intense ones and it's why it's part of uh, the main reason why we picked this band to actually do this course is because i know how crazy these mixes are and i was like well this is like the final level shit if i could you know show how i really work through a track like this this is about as advanced as it gets in that sense you know which by the way let me just add that we're we've included the the knock loose session is a bonus. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So for people who want to check that out. Okay. So the thing about nail the mix too, where this is different, much like my monuments bootcamp where we were re-recording a song that had already been released. So with nail the mix, there isn't the pressure on the mixer to be doing a mix that's going to be released. Like it already happened. So obviously they want to do a good job. Like, because we're paying them and all, not just that, you know, they're, they're professionals, so they don't, they don't want to do a bad job. And also they're on camera, so they don't want to do a bad job for personal pride reasons, obviously. But in this scenario, you're actually mixing it in real life. This shit hadn't been released yet. So there was a different kind of pressure on the situation than Nail the Mix. Yeah, it definitely took a bit of confidence to go well we're just going this is just kind of what it's going to be when we're done here because i'm not really going back on this and i did have a deadline for it and everything so yeah after the session we did one recall and i tweaked some mastering stuff and it was done so it's the real thing yeah it's pretty much the real thing you know i did like i want to be transparent because i don't I like being, you know, I, I want people to know exactly what they get. But all of the work that went into this mix, minus a, a couple, like there was one recall with, with some global tweaks and uh, like a final like mastering adjustment is the is like from what you saw in this course and then that happened and then that's the final song. So like what, you know, I think a few days after you guys left the IR got back to me and we made that, you know, I made that one little change and then that song was done. So it's really, it really actually happened <laughs> like this, yeah. you know, which was cool. I didn't even, I mean, when we signed up, when I signed up to do this, I even told you like, 
I don't actually know where this goes. And we ha- we had a deadline. Nick, who did a great job filming all this, was only out here. Shout for- out to Nick Pilata. You're yeah. a beast. He was out here with a flight booked and everyone was going home for the holidays and stuff. And it was like, it kind of had to get done. And I even told you like, hey man, I don't know where this ends. Like, I don't know if I'm going to get, because yeah. sometimes I'll sit down and I'll dial up a mix that I think kicks ass and a couple hours and sometimes it'll take me a week, you know? I think this took you three days, right? Yeah. It was somewhere like in between days. an hour and a week. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, <laughs> so- <laughs> it, it, it worked out and we got it done, but uh, yeah, I, it definitely, I played with it for a couple days and like on day two, I'm like, God damn it. I don't even know if I'm going to pull this off yet. Like I'm not stoked on the mix yet. Like I, I was going through it, you know, like, and I didn't, I've made a lot of the IR records that all have like different, like the productions a bit different from record to record and there's like a lot of pressure on making sure I do as good as I did when I had a whole you know doing a single is annoying because when you're doing a full record with a band I've done like four with iArt now you got like six seven eight weeks to tweak and do the minor things and this was like crash course stuff and now I'm sitting down to a mix with a band that's very important to me who whose productions I've slaved over for literally months in the past and I'm like oh cool I got three days to make this sound as good as like some of those so it's it was very challenging but i really threw everything i could at it and be, to try to accomplish that you know and i'm i'm stoked with the way it came out i'm actually just shocked <laughs> i was able to get it done that <laughs> you know i'm not shocked the thing to you know just to bring this back again to how it's different than uh than nail the mix and nail the mix again because somebody is already doing something that they did once even if they're going from scratch on nail the mix they already did it once and so there isn't the pressure there you don't get to see the back and forth of when they get to a place maybe they're not happy with it they need to retool it and so and the reason i'm bringing that up is because a lot of people who are learning how to mix will mix something and then hate it, and then go back to the beginning and think that there's something wrong with them. When in reality, that's something that every mixer goes through. You know, maybe not on every single mix they ever do, but that's that's a common thing to like get to, you know, to a certain point and then be like, no, gotta like rethink how this is structured or something. And yeah, yeah, that's a common, common thing. It happens to me all the time, all the time. And uh, I'd say three out of four mixes, I don't get it going straight. Like on the first go, I'm like, I got to come back and hear it the next day and then hate it and go, ah, this sucks. What did I do wrong? How do I, you know, and then sort of backtrack more and stuff. I'm guilty of it all the time. The most common thing I do is I get my gain staging wrong. I still get my gain staging wrong where, I mean, I have a lot of levels to it with the setup that I have and how I mix, but I'll be like fighting it for an hour. And then I'm like, I'm just hitting, like I'm hitting something too hard and it's shitty and blown up now. And I got to figure out why. And then it's like this, like fight to like back off some of the things and see where, where it got bad, you know, but it, it happens to me all the time. And you know, it's happened to me since the first mix I've ever done. And it happened to me literally yesterday, <laughs> you know? So it's definitely a, it's just, you know, it's very rare. You just like turn all of the faders up and it's perfect, you know? And I think it would be, it's pretty, it's pretty silly to think that when you sit down to do a mix every time that that's going to happen, that's crazy. You know? Yeah. That, that's the, that's the exception. So, all right. I want to wrap this up real quick. I just want to tell people what they get with this. 
So again, go to nailthemix.com slash how it's done. This closes on November 2nd. And the way we run our courses at URM is they open and then they close. And uh, the reason we do that is because we like to run our courses the way that you would, like say you were taking a class at a school where everybody goes at the same pace, only a section per week. The reason we do that is because if we were to release it all at once, you motherfuckers would binge it and you wouldn't get anything out of it because it's our courses have way too much info in them. And then you'd wonder why you didn't get any better and you'd get mad at us. And, uh, and we actually want people to improve from these. And so, and we've just seen, like, if we put it all out at once, people will skip to the cool shit at the end. They won't actually go through it and incorporate everything, every step along the way and like really, really take it in. So by doing it like this, not only are you forced to take it slow, but you also have the opportunity to interact with uh, the community at the same time who are all going through the same thing. So if it was all open all year round, you could just get it like in March and somebody in July and somebody now, uh, you're not going to have peers going through it at the exact same time to bounce off of. And, uh, you know, having people to bounce stuff off of and to talk to while you're working on this kind of stuff is super important, especially for those of you who are not working in a studio, you know, or are not in a city with a bunch of peers or whatever. And this internet is all you have for communication with other people who are also trying to do this. So that said, uh, what, how it's done includes is, uh, over 75 videos, uh, bunch of PDFs to go along with it, multi-tracks, raw multi-tracks for both songs. That includes the samples and the DIs, logic sessions for each, Will's tonality presets that are used in the songs, uh, guitar and bass tab, drum MIDI. There's going to be, now for the first, you know, if you're listening to this in 2022, this doesn't count. This only counts for the 2021 release. Uh, Will's going to do six weekly Q&As in the private group for an hour. So that means that those of you who are taking the course can ask Will about stuff in the course. And of course, that means that there's a private Facebook group just for people who got the course. This is cool. We're doing a Nail the Mix style mix poll with the Thy Art is Murder track with a ridiculous, and I mean ridiculous prize package. I'm going to just uh, read you off some of these prizes. So there's a pair of 115s from Amphion, a Universal Audio Apollo Solo, Creation Audio Labs MW1, Snare Weight Brass Number 5 with Prolab, Prolock, sorry, Empirical Labs Rouser, Tune Track is giving us SD3 and Easy Drummer, Avitas Audio PSP E27, Sure is giving us some mics like 57, 57LG, some earbuds. Ernie Ball donated something they're calling the Player Pack, which is a bunch of cool guitar stuff. $500 gift card from Evertune, STL Tone Hub, Will Putney's Soothe 2, an Origin FX Cali 76, and the Fab Filter Mastering Bundle. So somebody is walking away with a sick fucking prize. Not just that. It's ridiculous. That's like, it? what, six, seven grand? And so that's the craziest prize fact. That's awesome. Dude, and the Can Amphions? I enter the contest? <laughs> <laughs> well, you already got some Amphions. Yeah, but yeah, I got a B-room. Let me see if I can beat myself. <laughs> yeah, damn. 
Yeah, it's it's a ridiculous it's a ri- ridiculous prize package. And also, this what I'm about to read actually is for everybody. So everybody will get discounts at the Evertune online store from Creation Audio Labs from Origin Effects STL Tones. Uh, there's a special deal actually on Will's plugin, Empirical Labs Snareway and Avidus Audio. That's all listed in the on the site inside of the members area for the course. Of course, like I said before, you get Will's Knock Loose session, which is really, really great. And that does include the Knock Loose multitracks. And just because we love you guys, we're throwing in three months of URM Enhanced. So why that's good is uh, because... While this course is super comprehensive, it's not like a tutorial. This isn't like the be-all, end-all course on how to tune drums or some shit like that. It includes tuning drums, but this is more about capturing Will's process and how Will does things. It's not a tutorial. It's more of a masterclass, if that makes sense. So there's some things which you might want to know more about, like very, very detailed things techniques on tuning drums. Well, that's why you want our URM enhanced library. That's we have that kind of stuff. Like there's incredible use of compressors in this course. Uh, but if you know, if you want to go even deeper than that, go into our fast track library. So if you use them together, use the fast tracks as a supplement to all the great info and order of operations and big picture stuff you get from uh, from Will's course, that's how it's done. So um, keep in mind, like all the tactics, tips, tricks in the world aren't going to do shit for you if you don't have a bigger picture uh, to tie them all together with. So it's important to get both that that overview on how to approach an entire project and then also have a, a bag of tricks that you can have at your disposal for whenever you do have a problem you need to solve. Will. Yeah, cool. That, that, that was improvised too. Well, it was pretty good. It's like Thank you've you. done this before. <laughs> Once or twice. Like we had said before, like, you know, this is just how, how I work. This is how I make records, you know, and uh, it, there is no one-stop shop for any of this stuff. So whatever nope. you can do to further your education and learn from different people and pick up different techniques. I mean, it's a lot of how I learned stuff was just figuring out how other people do things too that aren't me you know and and even to this day i still get outside mixes that come in and i'm like this is cool how did he do that and then i have i learned something new you know so there's a never-ending quest to get better and pick up new tricks and tips from people so uh, you know continuing to do that not just for me but for anywhere is is the way you move forward and i think that we all know of that stereotype of the music person or the audio person who has gotten older and stagnated and maybe they were good 10 years ago or 15 years ago or prominent in their scene, but they kind of just leveled off. You see that a lot with like bands that had some potential at some point or a producer who just got stuck in a certain thing and then just never went past that point. And, uh, this is not a knock on anybody. More what I'm saying is what I've noticed in common between those types is that at some point they stopped being curious about how to keep pushing it further and they stopped being interested in, oh, what's that guy doing? Oh, that dude's fucking awesome. Like, what's going on there? Like, what's this latest technique that seems to be what uh, what's going around or 
whatever. What the fuck is this Soothe plugin everybody's talking about? You know, people who care stay current and are always trying to learn and realize that the path is never over, never ends. That's true. That's very true. (laughs) Will, thank you. Cool. Thanks, man. Appreciate it as always. And yeah, yeah, buy my course. It's good. (laughs) It's really fucking good. (laughs) Cool. Nailthemix.com slash how it's done. Thanks for listening, guys. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at ALEVY URM Audio. And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.